the teams that we have enjoyed working with or respect out there are the ones who started small, but grew a durable platform that has great people, that has a strong diversified investor base, that has, honestly, and this is going to sound funny, and not a lot of LPs feel this way, but a diversified product mix. I actually like groups that have not just one product, but really can start with one, but grow into other products, other strategies. If they have multiple sources of income, I think that makes them a better fiduciary over time. So I'm a believer in this. Hello, and thanks for tuning in to Real Estate Capital. I'm your host, Nancy Lachine of Park Madison Partners. Park Madison is a capital solutions and advisory firm serving the global institutional real estate business. We sit at the intersection of real estate managers and their capital partners. In bringing these two groups together, we speak to a broad range of thought leaders about recent trends in real estate investing, capital markets, and technology. And on this show, we try to bring some of those insights and conversations directly to you. I recorded this episode with Peter Brofman back in July 2020, and I think it's one of our best ever episodes. Peter is Managing Director of Real Estate Investments at Grosvenor Capital Management, known as GCM. Under Peter's leadership, GCM has evolved to one of the preeminent emerging manager programs in the real estate industry. Many large investors rely on Peter and his team to source new emerging managers who can add to the diversity and product mix to their portfolios. Our conversation focuses on the challenges of setting up a real estate investment management firm, how GCM selects best-in-class emerging managers, and the different potential pathways to raise institutional capital. For anyone looking to start a real estate investment management business, consider this a free masterclass on how to do it the right way. We begin with Peter's overview of how GCM has helped large institutional investors bridge the challenge of finding new managers and a fascinating discussion of how GCM uses their data to inform their investment decisions. Peter, welcome to the show. Thanks, Nancy. It's wonderful to be here. Hey, just a quick housekeeping note of my own before I get started. And just something I need to say, which is investments in alternatives are speculative and involve risks, including strategy risks, manager risks, market risks, and structural or operational risks and may result in losses. Okay, now that I've said this, I want to go on and just say, listen, I'm really, really looking forward to this conversation. As am I. So Grosvenor's real estate practice was established in 2010 and over the last decade has gained a wide recognition as one of the most thoughtful investors in our business. Not only have you helped build an impressive business, but in the process, you've also really helped put a lot of other people in our industry and business. Yeah, it's been a wonderful progress as we've built this practice. I love it. It's not just about the real estate, it's about people and it's about building real estate businesses. That's something I just really enjoy. It's kind of an interesting niche in the market. And it's something, as we'll talk about, is really helpful for a lot of our investors and a lot of investors out there to play in this part of the market. So let's start with your investors. Some of the biggest public pension funds on the planet have trusted you with their capital. So can you talk about who they are and what their motivations are and why are they looking to engage emerging managers? Well, yeah. So, so listen, these groups are, as you said, some of the largest plan sponsors in the country and the world. So very large corporates and large insurance firms, you know, they very often have very large real estate teams and they're able to invest directly in real estate. They don't need us to do that for them. What they're looking for is to create a bench for future 
real estate managers to invest in Brooklyn. So you have two kind of businesses happening. You have institutional real estate investment managers and you have plan sponsors and both are getting more and more sophisticated, but they want to continue to grow and they want to find new groups to invest with. And that's really what we're doing. We are surveying and finding thousands of different teams out there and teams that they can provide a new path of investment opportunities and growth for these plan sponsors. And you collected some of the best data I have seen, probably the best data I've seen on the performance of real estate emerging managers. I've seen most recently about a thousand managers whom you've tracked since 2010 and what their actual you know, annual performance is and benchmarked it against the appropriate metrics. Can you talk about the data you've collected, how you've collected it, what it tells us? From a data perspective, we've seen, as you said, thousands of groups. We've met with them over the years for the past 10 years. And one thing that we've done is we've really created an open door policy. We want to see everyone. But in order to see them, we want to collect data. So we collect information about them, who they are, about their team composition, uh, what they're trying to do, and then how they're doing, their performance. And then we meet with them periodically every year and collect additional information. And if they provide that information, we share that information with them back in terms of broadly how they compare relative to the, the larger universe. And that's just been a really interesting exercise for us. You know, real estate data is hard to come by. So we create our own. So yeah, we track a whole bunch of information and it includes everything from fundraising to performance. And it's just told us a lot of things. It's told us a ton of things about how groups perform over time. It tells us about which groups raise money better than other groups. What are the characteristics of those ability to fundraise? You know, it talks about, you know, vintage year. And honestly, just even about their backgrounds, you know, is there something about their backgrounds that makes it interesting from a performance perspective or from a capital raising perspective, even the length of time of raising capital? So what's fun about this data and about the team that we have is that they set this information and then we share it. Sometimes too much information, a lot of pie charts, a lot of info, but it's kind of interesting. Yeah, no, you have a deck that's definitely too long to present, you know, in- <laughs> I've seen some really interesting performance data from you that bears out my experience over the last 25 or 30 years in the business anecdotally, which is just performance driven. So Mm -hmm. relative to either benchmarking, whether you're using a Burgess or a Cambridge index, or relative to what their own expectations are, do emerging managers perform better than other managers or the same? What does that tell us about risk versus return, because we know there's more risk when there's an emerging manager, because they don't have the years of track record working together. It's a great question. And what we've done on that regard is we take really probably somewhere between 130 to 170 different groups. And every year we get their data and we ask for all their net cash flows, including their current marks. And then we say, okay, you know, we do this every year. And every year, as you said, we compare that to Burgess and to Cambridge because we think those are probably the two most fulsome benchmarks out there. And we do it on a pure vintage year basis, like we do in standard in the industry. And what's been interesting is, and we do that, we obviously measure on upper quartile, medium quartile, and, and lower quartile. We look at IRR, we look at multiple, and we look at DPI. Mm-hmm. And what's happened is, 
And this has been true for literally since we started doing just the performance. We have 10 years of data and we've been doing this for six years now. And so every year, emerging managers on upper and medium quartile have outperformed these benchmarks either you know, nine out of 10 years or seven out of eight years, whatever it is, always, you know, and sometimes every year. And even when they don't outperform, it's really just on par. And the volatility, the spread on that data is really kind of tight. So we're trying to figure out why is that? You know, we have a couple of theories, but I think obviously manager selection is always going to be a piece of it in terms of who you choose within this. But I think the biggest driver is that a lot of these groups really focus on the middle market and they focus on that part of the market where it's just more fragmented, it's less efficient, and they're able to extract alpha. And if you focus in that, you know, we did a lot of research on this. And if you look at this, you know, the middle market, and by that I mean deals that are less than 50 million in size. If you focus in this part of the market, you will see that that represents something between 90 and 95% of all deal flow. And historically, those assets trade at a 100 to 120 basis point premium on PAP rate. So if you're good and you focus in that part of the market, you're buying better. You're buying cheaper and you're buying with more yield. And that gives you more lift. So this part of the market is interesting and emerging managers occupy it. So that tells you why you can perform better. What's interesting as well is that it's consistent, that we're seeing this consistently year over year outperformance or consistent performance that's on par with broader managers. And that tells you something about the concern that people have that emerging manager more risky, that, that you're taking it to kind of a platform risk. When you see this kind of outperformance over a decade, you start to wonder, well, how much platform risk are you really taking if mm-hmm. you're generating this kind of outperformance? So we think it's very probative of that issue, and it tells you that this is not much of a concern as people really think. Yeah, that is so interesting, Peter. I mean, it, it just kind of took me back 30 years to when I, when I were both starting in this business, if you will. Yeah. And it really wasn't an institutional business. You had the insurance companies making loans, a few of them buying on their balance sheet, but it was just a bunch of entrepreneurs. And we've seen the institutionalization, I think that's a word, of the real estate business, both on the private side with you know the growth of real estate private equity, but also public REITs. And then, of course, public debt and CMBS and securitization. And so it's still such a large market. You nailed it. I mean, it's hard to assess how large this market is. LaSalle did an interesting study over the number of years that says that roughly there are about 50 trillion of real estate assets. Who knows? Maybe that's true. Of which something like you know seven to eight trillion or have been institutionalized through public or private markets. That means we've got a long way to go. Whatever the exact numbers are, there's some truth to that. And I think we feel that. We see that all the time. There's so much non-institutional capital owning real estate. And who's best to take advantage of that? And I'm a big believer that smaller managers can take advantage of that. They can access that non-institutional mom and pop, you know, generational capital that owns real estate, you know, institutionalize it and sell it into the broader market. The other thing I think is also kind of the motivations. You think about larger platforms, the groups that you and I started with 30 years ago, which started off small, they're very big now. You know, 
what are they trying to do? They're trying to generate consistent returns. A lot of them are looking to generate core-like or core-plus-like returns for big parts of their platform. And they have managed tremendous amounts of AUM and they, they focus on competitive parts of the market. That's fine. That's all good. But you know, their ability to generate true alpha is much harder you know, relative to the smaller managers who can really kind of find those niches and are not as focused on you know, long-term durable core-like cash flows, but are looking to generate you know, much more in ways of opportunistic returns. Absolutely. And then there's the human element, which, you know, motivates you and me in this business, which is when you have a young firm and it's their first fund and you pick the right people, they are motivated 24-7. They have no choice but to be really successful in that first fund. And it's so gratifying to help people like that start their business. They're all in and then help grow and be part of those early successes. It's pretty rare in my experience, I'm curious about yours, to see a first-time fund successfully raised and have it not be a successful investment process as well. I agree. It is rare. Once they get the capital, it's relatively rare. There are moments, right? There are moments, certainly, and you and I saw this before the GSC, where some groups, you know, there's just a lot of money flowing into alternatives at the time. And there were a whole bunch of groups that were popping up to raise capital. And, you know, they may not have financed themselves correctly. They may have invested in a market that was really going away from them, getting too expensive. So we've seen some of those things happen. And, you know, we'll see how in a post-COVID world that the groups that raise their first-time funds just before we just hit this last crisis, you know, what that's going to look like for some of them. That has less to do with them and more to do with just the macro issues that were really extraordinary. Well, before we leave this topic, I just want to put a finer point on it. Why are these large public pension plans creating emerging manager vehicles? Is it because they want to find more diverse managers and bring them into their stable of managers? Is it because they really do believe in the alpha story and they're trying to generate that performance? Or is it for some other reason? It really is both, or there's two things. And actually, I asked the third, which is they do like creating that bench. I see this all the time. A lot of the plan sponsors, they have great managers. They have a preferred list of groups that they work with over and over again. But inevitably, someone falls out of favor. Inevitably, someone you know, just goes, for whatever reason, they're not going to keep working with them. And they're always looking for some replacement. And so that is just a piece of it. The other piece is, and I've seen this more and more. A lot of these investment, these plan sponsors are just getting more sophisticated. They want to develop kind of niche strategies or they want to develop some joint ventures. They want to squeeze fees out. So maybe they want to do not necessarily just pure co-investment. They want to get opportunities to source deals where they're working directly with an operating partner. Not a ton, but a number of them are doing this. And so... It's very hard for them to survey this and figure this out themselves. They can, but you know, very often they're using emerging manager perks for that. But then, as you said, diversity and inclusion is a big part of it too. Rarely do you see one of those reasons be the driver. It's usually all three. And there may be different constituents within the organization that want different things, but they all kind of come together and say, look, yeah, as a package, this is what we're looking for in an emerging manager program. And they're motivated to create it that, for that reason. 
Do you have emerging manager programs, though, that will only take on diverse managers by diverse meaning they're majority owned or I think you have a third owned by, you know, a minority group? Very rare, but yes. So the vast majority, almost exclusively, do not define it that way. It's not just diverse ownership. It'll be interesting. I'm sure the next six months, there'll be a lot of conversation about this and, you know, perhaps some policy changes, which will impact you and all of us. Absolutely. So let's talk about fundraising. And I guess, I mean, we see managers and operators probably before you even see them. We see the folks who are thinking about it. You know, a friend recommended they come in and talk to us. You know, I'm sure there's a conversation or many conversations every week from groups who are coming in and saying, should we raise our first fund? And if so, what does that look like? And can you help us? You track maybe a thousand funds that are in the market looking to fundraise. What percentage of those first-time funds actually have a final close at something close to their target raise? Historically, that number has gotten up to about 33%. Okay. So, so, yeah, it's about a third. Yeah. Truth is, and that number includes second and third time, so the number is actually a little bit smaller than that. Okay. And how long does it take? So to get to your final close, and we usually tell people, expect 18 months of doing this. And the numbers bear that out. The numbers have skewed more narrowly over the past few years, where you'll see first time closes occur sometimes six months and your final close, you know, the number six months after that. But we usually measure that from the time someone issues a PPM. And that's usually, as you know, they've already had a bunch of conversations. Probably a year into the process at that point. Exactly. Uh And I'm sure you find this too, that no one believes you, right? We'll tell them, listen, you're going to be on this thing for a long time. They're like, it's not going to take that long. I'm like, no, it will. Peter, that's why I'm sort of pushing you on some of the great data that you put together, because it's hard to argue with data. And those are just the facts. Of course, nobody's in the media and everybody's going to be the exception to the rule. But you have a lot of great data. And I'll just spoiler alert for something I want to talk about later on how long it takes to be profitable as an emerging man. And so (laughs) so we'll get there. But just fundraising is a very steep funnel. And, you know, we probably bring to market 2%, and I'm not exaggerating, of the groups that we actually talk to every year, Mm -hmm. right? So it's a very, very steep funnel, which isn't to say that the rest of the groups aren't great real estate investors or don't have a lot to offer from an investment standpoint. It's just that all those ingredients that make up a fund which I want to talk about, aren't there right now. So what happens to the rest of those folks? And you know, where do you see the opportunity for folks who have really good strategies, really good operators, but for some reason, all the ingredients to create the first-time fund and a fund manager and withstand the next five or 10 years of building the business aren't necessarily in place? A number of things. It's helpful sometimes to look at who struggles to raise and who departs the fundraise. And more often than not, it's the local operators that leave. It's not because they're not great. It's because they don't need to stay doing this. You know, they have another source of capital. They can continue to work with a larger opportunity fund. They work with an institution. Whatever they've been doing, you know, at some point they say, you know what, I can't keep doing this fundraise. I need to get back to what I do. Uh And so most of them do that. 
you know, the newer teams that start and try to create some kind of platform and then struggle to raise money, that's kind of a different scenario. And very often what we'll see with them, if they can't raise a fund, they will go off and try to raise some kind of separate account. And quite frankly, actually, let me turn it into more of a positive. We think that some of the most successful groups out there are the ones who actually first, before they try to raise a fund, well, let's say it's a spin-out team, they'll go off and they'll raise money, do a joint venture or a few joint ventures. And some of these are large joint ventures. They'll do this for a couple of years. That way they solidify their platform. They develop an independent track record from their firm and they develop kind of a buzz in the market. Those tend to be the most successful strategies and the best kind of sequencing. But then some of them, you know, find that raising a fund, it just may not be worth it. So they'll stay doing that. So we see a lot of that. Does it matter? I mean, you talked about operators. You talked about spin-outs. You talked about groups that started out, you know, doing JVs. Is there a preferred background for you for a new emerging manager? Or is there any other key ingredient that you would identify? So one will be a little discouraging and one will be encouraging. So I'll start with the discouraging one and with the encouraging one. Discouraging is that the ones, honestly, that tend to do the best, they really do have capital relationships that precede them trying to raise a fund. You know, they know people. They've been in the business long enough and they know various institutional, you know, plan sponsor investors. They know the fund of funds. They know you. They know me. They know people. They weren't just deal people. They actually had that kind of capital relationship and reputation. And that makes a huge difference. I mean, it's just, you can't get away without it. Well, you can, but it's much harder. So I just think it's super important. Just it's realistic. I often tell people because, you know, more than half the groups that we work with are groups that spin out of large organizations. And a lot of them, we just tell them, you know, you're too early. You know, don't, or if you're not quite ready to raise a fund, maybe it's just, it's going to be tough to do it. And we just try and encourage them to just be a little bit more patient or just understand the road that they're on. On the other piece, the encouraging piece is if they're just really good, they're doing interesting transactions that are not commodity in nature. They're finding really interesting opportunities. I think those groups tend to do really well. They're niche assets maybe, or they're just something about what they do is really interesting. And it just, it flies off the page. And you know, and I know, right? These yeah. groups will come and we'll see a hundred groups. They're all very good, but there'll be a one or two that come in like, whoa, they just yeah. took something that is, we see it all the time, but they presented it and they think about it in a way that's so unique. And it's those kinds of groups. So what's encouraging about that is that if you have something special, if you're able to source in a certain way, you're able to execute in a certain way, you have a really interesting track record that does things, and you can discuss it in a way that, that really is special, then you very likely will succeed. I'm so excited about the next two funds we're planning to launch and talking with you more about them. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you know them already, Peter. But, <laughs> so, uh, I totally understand what you're saying. But you know, you also said something that I just want to touch on again. It's so important to understand the investment management business, have those relationships and those contacts, because it is a people business which puts a huge burden on the larger, more established managers to hire diversity and to bring people up and bring people along so that those people can grow within large existing organizations. And then because we all know that a diverse population just thinks and sees things differently, 
those men very often will be the people who will come up with the interesting idea, the unique idea, the one you haven't seen, you know, already presented. And we have to help give birth to that within our industry. And I mean, Priya has been doing that at SEO. Twigo has been doing it for years. But I think the real estate business is now starting to acknowledge that it's really time for action and to make sure that we implement this. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And again, on, I think on an encouraging note, we're seeing it. You know, you've seen some of our data before where, where we look at diversity, not just in our emerging manager base of the market, but in the investment manager, broader investment manager business. And unless that becomes more diverse, it's hard to create a diverse emerging manager market. People need to get training somewhere. People need to develop skills. And one of the things that groups like SEO and others do is they do change the landscape. The encouraging thing is that we've been saying, you know, we're really seeing, it's still a long way to go, obviously, but we're seeing tremendous change in the rank and file, certainly at the junior level, now more at the you know intermediate level, eventually at the senior level, at large investment management platforms. And that's the future of the emerging manager base. We've done these trees before, they usually, you know, and we start from the 1980s and actually, yeah, 1980s. And we show like the, when there were only a handful of firms and then we show who spun out and then who spun out of those firms and who spun out of those firms. And you grow and grow and grow and you start with like 10 and all of a sudden you wind up with a couple hundred different firms that were founded by people. The first iterations of those, there was no diversity. But now that's changing. And that's changing because of, you know, the complexion of all these organizations is changing as well. Right. Okay. So let's go back to talking about successful emerging managers from those groups that have successfully raised their first time fund. Once they've done that, they're done. They're all set, right? They're, you know, it's Nirvana. (laughs) (laughs) No. (laughs) What kind of deal, special terms should you expect to give your lead investor? How many funds, Peter, does your data show? Well, the data shows, let's put it this way, you expect to invest anywhere, and we've shown this data before, you know, five to seven million dollars in your business over a period of you know five to six years. And then it's going to be a decade before you get that money out. Now that means prior to that you will start making money, but you should expect your first fund from a net cash flow perspective, not to be profitable. You'll be net invested. Your second fund, you'll start to see some, you know, depending on the size, obviously, you'll start to feel some profitability. At least you'll be break even or more on a income basis, but you're not making money. You're still investing and you're getting money out. The toughest thing and people don't remember is that there are two huge costs of running your business. And it's not, yeah, the technology is important, all that stuff. That's not it. It's people. And it's co-invest. 75% of your money of your expense load are your people. And you know what? That's the right thing. That is a people business. You have to invest in your people. But the second is that every time you raise a bigger fund, you have to put more money into your business. And so not just in the overhead, but just to co-invest. Growth is a curse. It's a wonderful curse. But the fees do not offset these things because the fees are going to keep your lights on. You're waiting back-ended for your incentives to come in, and then you turn profitable. But you know what? 
that's a decade out. So that's what the math looks like. We've looked at this stuff a lot and what we did, and you and I had a fun conversation about this, but it was, we get the budgets from so many different groups and we ask them, you know, we'd like to see it and we will comment on it. We'll comment on what they're building and what they're forecasting, what we think makes sense. And then we took a lot of that and then created our own model, kind of a generic model. And then we shared it with them and said, what do you think? A lot of them were just always responding like, wow, how do you know? Others would say, you know, it's worse than that. And then <laughs> others would say, well, it's a little bit better. But it was a really useful tool. And it just helps us show groups, particularly the ones who are just getting going, listen, this is not like, hey, you're raising money, you're happy. You're building a business. This is not just a deal. This is a business. And if you're going to build this business, you have to think about how do you create a business that you want to last with a revenue stream that's really kind of uneven. You have these asset management fees and you have these incentive fees and they don't line up with your expenses. So you have to front load your expenses and you have to raise more money to keep growing your revenue base because that revenue base keeps declining as you return capital. So it's a very interesting model. To your point, you're going to cut deals. You're going to cut deals with your LPs in order to raise funds. Because if you want to be in this business for a long term, you have to raise the money. And the groups that are going to be there early are going to expect some kind of deal. The key on that is, I think, try to make this not just a transactional conversation. Try to make this a partnership conversation. So understand the motivation of your LP. Your LP is trying to maximize returns. So what kind of fee incentive structure maximizes returns? Is it just cutting a fee or is it a fee holiday? You know, do the math. And then you'll say, hey, listen, you know, if I give you this kind of deal, it's actually better for me, but it's actually better for you too. You know, right. you can have that conversation. Don't just make it, oh, a static, I'll cut the fee or I'll cut this because, you know, no one's going to feel, it's fine. A lot of people do it that way, it's fine. But I think there's a better, the better solution is to really kind of do the math, think about the impact from an IRR multiple perspective. And again, understanding the goals of your LP and what they're trying to achieve because they're all under pressure to maximize returns just like you are. And if you could show them that your fee structure will help them do that, then they'll be more incentivized to come in early and strike a deal. That is fantastic advice. And of course, it's hard for someone to hear when you're giving the advice in the abstract to say, you find that one investor who falls in love with you first and then see what's important to them and where you can negotiate a fee structure that really works for them, but also works for you. It's not like there's a one size fits all. There's not. That's the hard part. You're right. You know, one of the things that I've, it's just been rattling around in my head, but I haven't really given serious thought to it. And I don't know, you know, it'd be interesting to start thinking about the data points. If you go back, you and I have 30 years of history, and it seems like every 10 years is a significant inflection point. Now we are at a significant inflection point. And we're all looking back to the GFC as the last inflection point and making references there. And after the GFC, there was the guys who succeeded. There was sort of the guys in the middle and muddled through. And then there's the people who just were underwater. Teams split up. They just didn't have enough capital to pay people. Give me your sort of best guess of where we're going to come out after this cycle. And I know I'm totally putting you on the spot on that one. <laughs> it's a great question. Let me answer it this way. 
we're a little bit more disciplined as a business, as an industry, than we were the last time before the GFC. And unlike the GFC, which was a true liability financial crisis caused by the financial system, and therefore you had to grow your asset base to overcome a liability problem. Here, this is much more a revenue problem. And so it's already looking different than it did before. It will have similarities. It's going to have, obviously, assets that no longer able to service their liabilities. But the liabilities were not nearly as onerous as they were the last cycle. So there was more discipline in that part of the market. So I think that will serve us well. The issue is going to be certain assets are going to just really be unrecoverable. So groups that had overexposure to certain kinds of assets, obviously we could talk to things like hospitality or like retail. We're going to have just, this is going to be much tougher for them. It just mathematically, it's just not going to work. And then you know, the question will be about office, obviously, and what that looks like. But that's going to be different and it's unclear. So I think it's going to be less uniform and more driven by certain asset types and your exposure to that. So it's going to be driven more by geography. So, you know, I think we're all kind of concerned about certain cities these days and what those cities may look like, what the recovery in those cities are going to look like. So overexposure to certain markets is going to be problematic. And that's going to be true even for problem assets. You know, there are going to be some asset types that I just talked about, retail, hospitality, that in certain markets actually may do just fine. So you don't know. So I think overall it's going to be uneven. I think the liability side will be much better handled than it was last time. So I think a lot of these managers are going to, more will be okay. We're not going to see kind of the bloodbath we saw before. At least that's my feeling right now. But there are going to be some that are going to have uh, trouble. I think the other piece to it, though, is that we're not seeing the same kind of distress at the institutional plan sponsor level. You know, last time, that was hard. There were groups that didn't want to make capital, didn't want any capital calls. They had capital liquidity problems. We're not seeing that at all this time. So capital is going to be more patient and look for smarter solutions as opposed to, you know, just some of the solutions we saw last time. Right. Well, and of course, the Fed flooding the system with money you know, a $2 trillion care package, another one to come. All of that's helping. Big time. The speed of it's extraordinary. So it, it is helping. It's distorting the market. And so it's hard to see exactly how that's going to play out. But you're right. It's huge. <laughs> Usually impactful. And I think just that's a really good point. A lot of folks who just appreciate that it's distorting the market. We haven't really seen where things will settle yet. We talked about this a little bit, but to the extent that you have fresh capital, where do you think the best opportunities are today? I mean, we are looking, obviously, anything that says industrial, anything that says data center, lab sciences, they're probably trading it at or higher prices to pre-COVID in some situations. So, yeah, look, kind of all the above. I think the general theme that we are following, because you brought up things like industrial and data centers and other are you know, in a very uncertain demand scenario, because we don't know exactly what revenues are going to look like in the future for different types of assets. Where can you create or find long-term durable cash flow? And because of the demographics, because of certain demand drivers, and can you aggregate portfolios of these things and then package them and sell? 
And you could sell them to larger players. You could sell them to the public markets who need it. And this could be across different asset types. So you take the industrial experience, but you could extrapolate that and put that to just about any asset type if you could find the right segment within those assets to do those kinds of things and create, you know, again, this very higher quality revenue stream. That's one theme that we're following. The other theme, as you said, is being just opportunistic and going around the country and doing what the larger allocators really can't do, but doing on a smaller level, finding distributed pockets of, you know, just deals. Deals where they're turned upside down, but fundamentally these are great assets. You're able to buy well because of a distressed lender who has to get out of their debt position because they can't fund it, a distressed owner, or just kind of an absent owner, all the kinds of usual things that you want to find out there, grab that and buy at a really good basis. But fundamentally, you feel good about the underlying drivers. But then the third thing, which is always probably the most interesting for us, is kind of that, you know, buying in at the entity level. You know, what can you do in this kind of market where you could, you know, not just get real estate returns, but get other kinds of returns in addition, other optionality, other revenue streams by working with operators who need capital solutions, not just at the asset level, but at the platform level. And if you can package that, and that's something we spend a lot of time on, that's a really interesting opportunity. So we think all those things work. I think the struggle that we will have in the market, and I know you've seen this, I've seen it, is number of recovery funds or dislocation funds that are out there flooding the market from so many of our friends, there's a lot of capital out there. Unlike last time, there's a lot of liquidity. So it's going to be competitive. It's going to be competitive to find interesting opportunities. But a lot of that capital is all going to be because it's large. Again, it's going to be going for larger opportunities. So I think the secret in this market, not secret, but one nice path to success is avoiding that and finding the small pockets of opportunity and aggregating where these larger groups can't play. Right, right. Yeah, there's so much more we could talk about about where the opportunity is now, but I think that's next podcast. So just just to circle back, you have such an interesting way to select managers and to talk about how you select managers. And the factors you consider, you have a pictorial image of this onion and on the outside layer are... I think it's the manager, and then you go to the fund, and then you go to the portfolio construction, and then at the base is the deal. So give us a little color about you know what you're really looking for in picking a manager, and what are the key kernels that make that difference? We do look at performance in these teams at multiple levels. We don't think about it as just a number. And a lot of groups come do that, right? They come in, they say, look at our returns. And I'm like, yeah, no, these returns look great. Let's break it down. First, break it down like what's interesting that they've done at a deal level. Like just truly the deal level are these interesting deals, how they source them, you know, how they structure them, what happened, even if it didn't work out great, what they think and how they put these together. But then did they think about this not just as a deal shop? And this is the mistake most groups do. They come in like, look at our deals and look at us. And you're like, yeah, but there's all the stuff in between. So <laughs> the onion is. First, the deal, but then 
okay, now let's look about the portfolio. What did you do as a portfolio? Were you thinking about this as a portfolio construction? Were you thinking about risk across this? Were you thinking about this as managing someone's money as opposed to just, hey, let me find this great opportunity and let me just invest in it? Because when you think about it, managing money, there are deals you're just not going to do because all of a sudden you're taking on too much risk or the deals you will do in order to balance your portfolio. But then you're also going to be thinking about this as a manager of a fund or a manager of a relationship. And you're going to be thinking about this at the next level, which is how did I make sure to get money back to my investor? How did I make sure to maximize the returns to minimize the gross and net spread? You know, right. And that's the next level. And how did I manage my J curve? You know, what did I do about that? And the final level is like, what was I a fiduciary? Was I thinking about not just about this one entity, this one fund, but I'm thinking about this broadly across multiple products. And so we look for groups who maybe, you know, it's great if they think like this, but if they don't think like this, they will be able to think like this. They'll be able to do these kinds of things. And they understand the path that they're on, that they're no longer going to be a transactional player, but they're going to be a manager of money. And they're going to understand all these different levels. So that's kind of how we think about picking a manager and if they get all these pieces of the onion, so to speak. Yeah, that's so well said, Peter. I think one of the first things I learned in this business was talking to one of the more brilliant deal guys in one of the early shops I worked at. And he said, well, we're always just looking for the cheapest source of capital. We hear that all the time. We hear people wanting to raise a fund because it seems like an inexpensive right. source of capital. Plus, it's a ready source of capital. But of course, you know we've talked about all the other pieces of it. If you also don't see yourself as a fiduciary, as a service provider, and as a partner to your capital, you really won't make it past you know, the door. You might as well not waste your time. And if you can find joint venture partners on a deal-by-deal basis, continue to collect your promotes on a deal-by-deal basis. And that could often work better for you and the team. I think that's exactly right. And you know, one thing that's been... Like fun for us about our business model is that, you know, we started out investing just in funds, as you know, but that's changed over time. And so now most of what we do is not that, you know, we still invest in funds, but Thank we... Goodness. Thank goodness. <laughs> <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. So funny. I think this is right. Like, I love the fund business. I think it's great. But for us to really figure out if someone is great, like, we'll assess lots of things and we'll determine, like, this is a good group. They know how to source. They can do good deals. Okay, now the question is, can they become a fund manager? If we don't know that yet, but we know they're going to do good things, let's work with them on a deal basis. or let's work with them on a joint venture basis. Let's see them. Let's just work with them. And so we'll do a whole bunch of, you know, transactional work with these groups over years before we even raise a fund uh, or work on a fund with them. And that's kind of a nice process and a nice progress because then you could grow with the team and you could help them become better partners. You could help them see what they need to do in order to become a fund manager. And if you could do those things, I think that's a kind of a nice process and it, it enlarges the pie. So now groups that I would have said, you know, listen, they're not ready and so I'm not going to invest with them. I don't have to do that anymore. I can work with them today. I can invest with them today, but just not on fund. And then over time, we can do that. Or we could do a bit of both. You know, we could work with them on a fund and we could help them with another part of their business. So that's been a nice part of the development of our platform 
And, you know, we think that helps the emerging manager marketplace. So what's the end game of setting up an investment management firm? What is it that you're looking for in somebody where you go, I know this person or this group is driven to do this? Well, I think the end game is they understand the real estate and they understand the business that they're trying to create. They have a goal and they want to create a broader platform and they're able to do it. They're able to work with their investors. They're able to be really excellent partners and they could grow this platform into a meaningful business. So a lot of groups we work with have been able to do that, you know, or the ones we've looked to, we hope are able to do that, let's put it that way. And that's what we've seen. Yeah, they are going to be good stewards of capital, but they're going to be flexible. They're going to think about the business broadly. They're going to understand this business as a business and how to marry their revenues with their expenses and how to be good partners long-term. I know that sounds like a kind of a vague answer, but that is really the goal. The teams that we have enjoyed working with or respect out there are the ones who started small, but grew a durable platform that has great people, that has a strong diversified investor base, that has, honestly, and this is going to sound funny, not a lot of LPs feel this way, but a diversified product mix. I actually like groups that have not just one product, but really can start with one, but grow into other products, other strategies. And you so they have That's an unusual thing to say. So that's, it's great to hear you say that. But I believe it because I think to your point, you know, if someone's a pure opportunistic player and they get blown out and they lose all their promoting their opportunity funds through a a crisis and they can't keep their team, that's not good for anybody. So it's not good for them. It's not good for their investors. If they have multiple sources of income, I think that makes them a better fiduciary over time. So I'm a believer in this. I really believe like you got to grow your platform and you need to think about that because the only way to keep people is to think about this as a business where they can grow into. And how many teams have you and I seen where they grow and all of a sudden they're stuck? They have great people. They, people can't go further. And so what are they going to do? They can keep these people and often they don't. You know, We're the beneficiary of that because we'll get a lot of these people spin out and start their own firms. But if you want to keep these people, you, know, you need to grow a platform, create an incentive base that you could you know, provide long-term durable income to them. So anyway, I know I'm a little unusual in that regard. Yeah, no, it's great. And I think for us, you know, it's really clear when somebody comes in and they have a vision and they know where they want to go and they're driven to that. You know, I'll quote Yogi Berra who said, you know, if you don't know where you're going, you'll likely end up someplace else. And we see a lot of aspiring investment managers, of course, as you do. And, you know, we always ask people, why do you want to raise a fund? So You've just given Peter people a lot to think about as they consider their future business plans. And we thank you so much for your time. This was a great discussion. So much more to talk about. We look forward to the next time. Please come back and join us. Yeah, let's do part two sometime. I love it. This is fun. It just got even more fun as we kept talking. So I know you and I could go another hour or so. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll do that in the future. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Real Estate Capital. Before you go, I have a quick favor to ask. We put a lot of thought and effort into this show and making sure we bring you insights from real estate leaders that you don't normally find in the mainstream media. So if you're enjoying the show, please remember to follow it on your favorite podcasting app so you never miss an episode. We'd also love for you to share it with others or give us a review on Apple Podcasts so others can find us. 
Thanks again for tuning in. For more information about our firm, please visit our website at parkmadisonpartners.com.